0: The big thing I try to get the people leaders to see is that they need to allow people to be their individual selves. People are gonna bring a certain uniqueness to the workplace that they may not see. So I always give them the analogy. it's said, if you look at people in their personal lives, there's a chance that things that they lead outside of work, they may be doing a better job of that relative to what they're doing outside of work than maybe you're doing in terms of being a people leader at work.
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Azam Zahir from General Motors. Azam explains how early in his career, he had to learn how to inject influence without a title, why he reviews his team members early and often, and how encouraging people to bring their whole self to work can strengthen your program. Effectively leading high performance teams isn't a skill you develop overnight. How do you practice these skills without necessarily having a title to match? Or rather, how do you lead from behind until it's your time to step into an official leadership role? Azam, first off, thank you so much for being on the show with us today.
0: Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: this is great. You know, we had a had an earlier chat, and it was one of the best conversations I had uh, really for that entire week, maybe the month. And so I've been really looking forward to having sort of the official chat. For those that may not know you, if you would please introduce yourself. Who are you, and and what do you do for a living?
0: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So my name is Azam Zahir. You know, I have the responsibility of running the Insider Threat Program at General Motors. So I'm the global director there. And as far as who I am, father of four and, um, you know, husband and, and everything that comes with that, plus a full-time professional when it comes to work in the cybersecurity space. So I probably have at least four or five jobs if I break it down.
1: <laughs> sure. Now, you didn't start out with that professional title. What was the road that got you to where you are today?
0: Yeah, so I, I think it was, uh, you know, really a series of you know opportunities to be really inquisitive, right, in the space, right. So you know, coming out of school, being not only being in roles that were assigned to me, but either taking it upon myself to do additional work or really going back and seeking additional opportunities, right, whereas probably the majority of my peers at that time were looking to just do the job that they were assigned to them and go home or or go out and party for me it was you know just a constant state of inquisitiveness that really kind of forged my path to where i am right now we're going to spend some
1: more time on kind of the more steps and methods you use to get there but how long ago did you move into an official leadership title i know that in many conversations and it's something i adopt and i and i know it is to you as well that even if you're an individual contributor, you're still a leader. So I, I don't lead the question with that. But there comes a point in time then when you finally get kind of the, the moniker to go with the action. When did that occur for you?
0: Uh, that would have been around the 2007, 2008 timeframe. Okay.
1: What was the biggest change for you having that title change in terms of your work day? What did you think it was going to be? And what was it actually?
0: Yeah, so I think for me you know as an individual contributor, I think the the one thing that I, I became really good at was managing with a lot of influence without the direct responsibility right so you know what that means in terms of my peers or individual other leader other people leaders that I had to work with I had to really utilize skill sets that gave me the ability to inject influence without really having the, the management or people leader responsibility and I think that was the probably the the biggest foundation that laid, that, you know, kind of laid the path for me to become a people leader. And then the transition was really understanding that maybe my position in the room had changed just a little bit. So, you know, you're giving the responsibility of managing people. So, you know, having to spend more time on that aspect versus spending more time influencing people to do what you want, you have kind of direct management control and responsibility. Uh, and accountability to to you know influence them day to day, but then you know finding that sweet spot now because having that level of responsibility or you know influence doesn't really go away overnight. So you're just managing it with yourself and a team now. So you kind of have you know kind of building a small army to accompany you, and then you also kind of managing their expectations of how people should respond to me as a people leader, as well as them being in a group. Not an easy question to answer immediately
1: unless you've given it thought, but what were you most afraid of going into the
0: position? I think the biggest thing, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've given this some thought because I, I had a lot of fear. around <laughs> it. You know, I think the biggest thing was failing as a people leader. So failing the people that were under my leadership, not giving them the needed time and attention was probably the biggest fear. When I made a similar
1: move into into official leadership role, I actually had a list of things that I was concerned about that I was afraid of that were just sensitive points that I thought, you know, something similar. I don't want to fail, I don't I don't want to screw this up. And it ended up that the things that I was afraid of most ended up not happening. And there was this other list of things that I hadn't considered that ended up happening, right? That's that sort of as good as I thought I could be at sort of predicting my points of, of possible failure. None of that mattered. And it was a whole litany of other things that I hadn't even considered. And uh, I guess, was there anything like that for you? I mean, you covered what you were afraid of and what you you saw as a source of fear or concern. But was there anything that You're like, damn it, I wish I had thought about that. Or boy, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Or wow, was I weaker at that than, you know, as a skill I didn't have that I had to kind of figure out on the fly. Did anything fall into that category?
0: Yeah, I think the one thing that kind of stands out from memory is primarily around just the day-to-day kind of administrative people management task. Right. When you run hot as a individual contributor for so long, you're not concerned about, the HR administrative items for someone else, right? Because it's, it's just not within your realm of responsibility. For me, I was more focused on giving them the time and attention individually that they needed to develop or get up to speed. And probably the, just the HR tasking aspect, aspects, I just <laughs> working the time in to do that um, when you're executing, especially in, you know, on a technical team, it really just requires you to, to halt and... Um, and change mindset a little bit to get those things done. Speaking of HR, you said that, and it reminded
1: me pretty early on when I first became a what was sort of the junior of the two director positions. At one point in time, I didn't have any sub managers and hadn't been promoted up, or you know, there was no sort of sub directors or managers or leads. And I remember one Thanksgiving, sitting and doing reviews for, I spent the entire break doing nothing but reviews for 16 people. And I remember, you know, that's sort of an, an administrative human, it's very important, right? I think the traditional review process is, is really garbage. Uh, that most organizations adopt, you know, having this one sort of big bang event at the end of the year is nonsense, but that was one of the things that I, that I was surprised at, uh, just the how long it took to basically write 16 essays over your Thanksgiving break, <laughs> We need to do better as leaders there. I don't know. I wasn't expecting to ask you questions about HR review processes, but I guess I will now. So many of your other answers that, you're, that I know you're going to give and the answers we talked about. What's a better way to review people? How does a ZOM review folks? Kind of not
0: an official answer, but
1: just other ways to give feedback. Treat us with
0: that. Early and often, right? I don't know that you sit on feedback. is probably the worst, one of the worst things that you can do we all know we shouldn't wait until the review period to surprise someone with some feedback that they hadn't heard before. Yeah, But I think, because it just doesn't work out, it makes it really awkward and, and contentious. People are already nervous going into it. So for me, I, I, I try to take the nervousness out of the room throughout the entire year. So if I have an employee that, you know, exhi- let's say exhibiting some, some behaviors that I know are going to come back to bite you know, that particular employee, it's a quick, hey, let me pull you to the side. Let me give you some quick feedback. This was observed. No harm, no foul. Let's move on. And doing it early and often, what I, found, what I find is that people are not as sensitive to the discussion, right? So then they go into you know, a phase where they want the feedback sometimes. And you're like, I'm, I'm like, I don't have any feedback. I'll, you know, I'll tell you, right? But early and often is, is my motto. I don't wait to provide feedback, whether it's positive or negative
1: early and often doesn't fit within the traditional sort of HR review cycle though. So that's something that really, I think in most cases, the individual leader has to adopt. But I think, I think it's just being present, right? And, and giving that feedback often in a candid way. I think a lot of times leaders kind of wall themselves off from their staff as well. And so when you have that, it's the only conversation you have. It's this sort of uncomfortable, formal talk once a year, maybe twice a year, which is always a, was a huge pet peeve of mine uh, when I was an individual contributor, when I had those examples. I don't know. That's, so I think the early and often thing is a, a great technique. Sometimes it doesn't
0: scale well, uh, depending on how big your team is, but that's another topic. If it's an employee of a manager that's reporting to me, like in a situation now, it's feedback for them to give that feedback as well, right? So that they get acclimated to doing the early and often. Because the last thing I want to hear is, you know, I get a complaint that my manager didn't tell me, right, that this was a problem until mid-year or end of year, right? I hold those managers accountable for providing that feedback early and often as well. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, scaling a team, so you mentioned 16 people, you know, that's a lot harder when they're directs, right? (laughs) So then you almost kind of prioritize what's worth your time in terms of the feedback. Like some things you go, okay, that's probably a mid-year item. Versus no, I've got to correct that right now. So one more
1: question I thought of before we go back to Young Azam. We're about ready to take a trip <laughs> to have a conversation with Young Azam. Before we do that, you're talking about, you know, sub team leads or managers that are leading people that ultimately report up through you but may not be a direct report. And I've appreciated your answers that you've given in earlier conversations and today so much. I think you'll have a good perspective on this. Do you have any rules for leaders, people leaders in your program? Is there any sort of leadership, sort of cornerstones of leadership that you expect to see? And I'll give you a quick example of one that I had, the people that have listened, well, I'm sure what I'm about to say, is that once you go into leadership and become manager or director in one of my programs, you give up console access. <laughs> to technical systems and the reason is is because it, it erodes trust yes it means you're spending time you know, your job should be focused on mission and leadership and being a good steward of the people and your mission has changed and so you don't want to erode uh, trust you want to be able to delegate well you've got to have that feedback that two-way street so that's one of my examples I'm sure you have many more and probably more interesting than what I just shared, but I I shared it to set the tone. Do you have any?
0: As far as like the the soft skills, the big thing I try to get the people leaders to see is that they need to allow people to be their individual selves, right? People are going to bring a certain uniqueness to the workplace that they may not see. So I always give them the analogy. I said, you know, if you look at people in their personal lives, there's a chance that Things that they lead outside of work, they may be doing a better job of that relative to what they're doing outside of work than maybe you're doing in terms of being a people leader at work, right? Wow. Because people lead really interesting lives. They lead, whether it be within their places of worship, areas of volunteerism, um, you know, charity work, anything that they do outside of work, a lot of times they develop really strong leadership skills within their own right. And so they are looking at you with that lens as them as leaders. And so there are things that they're going to want from you that they may not be getting. So it's really important for you to allow them to be their individual selves because you'll notice opportunities for them where you can take advantage of it, right? It's just natural to them. They're accustomed to doing it outside of work and they'll bring that into the workplace. So, so for me, that's, that's probably one of the bigger things is allow them to be themselves at work. And to be
1: clear, you're talking about individual contributors being themselves and learning from, or I assume, asking them not only about not only understanding their individual self, but asking them about their whole self to say, you know, hey, what experiences do you have? Am I understanding that correctly? You're saying you want to you want the leader to understand the whole self, the whole person, and maybe there's something that collectively can be Understood and utilized. Is that an accurate assessment or, or am
0: I off? I think that's fairly accurate. You may have people that lead multiple teams in a charity event, let's say, for example. Right. If you have them in a role where they're an individual contributor, but there's not, an, there's not like a lot of, you know, I guess, controlled chaos within the workplace. Sure. They may not be leveraging all their skill sets. They could work over a weekend managing multiple teams during a charity event. There's undoubtedly chaos. So, you know, how do you introduce some level of controlled chaos within the workplace and therefore take advantage of, you know, a natural skill set that they may be bringing to the table? Because they, at that point, they're not fully utilized. And so for me, it's about at least understanding and seeing if they have an interest doing work that just kind of naturally lends itself to a skill set they inherently have. Sure.
1: Absolutely. And I was going to say, uh, not the flip of that, but. If you are attempting to bring someone up into the leadership ranks, understanding this is keenly important because it's going to give, sadly, everything's political and you've got to paint a picture of the individual. You've got to be an advocate for that person. And there's all sorts of political blockers, especially in large corporations or even small ones, but especially in large ones, it seems. So if you can discuss and articulate, the ways that this individual is a leader, both as an individual contributor outside of the company walls, but also how that will lead, it, lead to likely success as a now a new leader. I think that's something that a lot of folks in leadership don't do enough of. They don't cite those examples yeah. in personal life, which really I think the barrier is just given a damn a lot of times. Right. I mean, I think that's a good square one. I like that approach. I was a little more tactical on saying, like, hey, there's sort of Steve's rule, right? Steve says, no more playing in the firewall when you become a manager, right? That's somebody <laughs> else. You, know, you, you took a, a, a much more poetic approach. Both, I think, are important. I appreciate that. We're going to get more into a bit of that later as well. I've got another question for you, but let's go back. As I promised everyone, we're going to go back in time and talk to Young Azam. Uh, one of my favorite questions, it's sort of a, a mentorship one in a way, but what should young Azam do or, or not do, um, or what advice would you have given yourself? Uh, you had a very specific answer to that, uh, which I think applies to many, many of us. What's your advice
0: to young Azam? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. The, the first thing I would say is, you know, and this is always hard for, it's easier to say when you're looking back and you're kind of giving this advice, you almost sound parental in nature, (laughs) but, but, you know, the, the big thing for me was, I, I think, looking back would be don't chase the few dollars, right? Don't chase the money. And typically it's not a whole lot of money when you move from, let's say, job to job. And really focus on the career, not the jobs that are being offered to you. If the job does not offer you a great career opportunity relative to growth, then probably second guess it, right? When people typically throw money at you, they're hiding something else, at least from my experience. That's, that's what young Azam learn is they're not going to talk. They're going to they're lead with money because they don't want to talk about all the problems that you're going to face when, you, when they get you in the door. And those are things that you really should know about, but they throw money out there because they don't want to tell you about them for a reason.
1: But sometimes, I mean, you said you might get hit with a bunch of problems when you get in the door, but could you make the, the argument that problems, a lot of times working on problems is sort of a, a come up as well, right? I mean, if you're, if you go into this sort of firefighting scenario and it's, uh, a bunch of failed systems or, or poorly managed processes, like there's education that comes with that too, or, or were you taking it a different way?
0: No. So I was thinking more or less, these are cultural organizational problems Uh, that, you know, you as an individual, you know, switch jobs, you, you you take $5,000 more. And that's not your job to fix those cultural problems, nor will you have the capacity to, to fix them. You know, so they throw a little bit more money at you right. In, right. to entice you and not really tell you about the full culture of the organization.
1: I'll tell you one example that I just thought of that needs to be, I don't know, somebody needs to write this down or remember it, uh, especially those that are newer in their career. A lot of times you'd get an opportunity and it might not even be a good one, but it's worth more money, let's say. And it may be ultimately be a a bad opportunity with poor culture and bad leaders and all the rest, but it's 10 grand more. Mm -hmm. And you take that to your boss, you're getting ready to leave, but you take that and say, hey, they're going to pay me 10 grand more. And then your boss gives you that 10 grand to stay. (laughs) Now, the conundrum I have with that, and I'm sure you have a position on this too, is that why in the hell did you just give me this money to begin with? Like, why did it take me saying I was going to bounce? To get out of here, and then for you to feel like I was worth—wasn't I always worth that extra ten grand? Now I've got a position on it. And I'm not going to say what I've told everyone to do if you're in that spot, but you laughed, so you—you must have an opinion on it, or at least an example in your own career. Maybe Young Azam does. What do you think about that?
0: So this is kind of where we get into HR demystified, right? <laughs> right. I think the important thing to remember or to note in this—the thing I learned—is that you know, I always always got the advice that you know if you're going to present an offer that you receive you got to be willing to leave right that you know you don't you don't just take the counter and stay i've received that as advice right and i've also received the opposite saying you know if you know if you want to ensure that you're getting you know what you're worth with the company and you want to stay then that's an opportunity to that's one way to do it i don't really know that that's the right way either but what i'll say is and we've all experienced this if Sometimes that allows us as leaders to pull levers to say, you know, I've been advocating for this person. You know, we've been talking about the fact that this person is worth more, is doing more work, et cetera. Then that lever, you know, sometimes can get pulled. I think the important thing to remember is, you know, sometimes we don't understand what our position is, right? In that lever discussion. Right. And so you go to turn in a resignation thinking you're going to get matched and that lever doesn't exist for you. (laughs) Right. So I think for all of us, regardless of level, right, we, we need to understand that.
1: So you, you covered a lot there. And I you can use a resignation notice. If you if you play the game the right way, you can use a the threat of someone leaving. So you're the leader and you're you're in with this associate or, or manager, whoever the person is, you you want them to stay and, and there's a good relationship there. But you're you're stuck in this political quagmire of getting this person promoted or in some other position. And I think you can use that as a as a lever together. A little bit of collusion there maybe, but you can use it often to get a better situation for your people. And that's I've always done what I could in that scenario. I had it backfire a couple of times, but typically it led to good results. The example I was thinking of when I let in with this. Is a little different to me. If you're out applying for new jobs, or even if you get a new offer, and you believe it to be a good one, culturally, financially, it may not even be for more money. But at the point that you want to leave, I personally don't take counters. I don't. I don't take. I've never taken a counter. Mm -hmm. Now that could be bad advice, or maybe not good advice. I don't know that it's bad, but it may not be good. Just because it's it's a philosophical reason. It's like, look, if I wasn't happy or fulfilled, or wasn't. Like extra money or a different title doesn't fix the reason why I want to leave, I think is the, kind of the, where I go with that. But as a leader, you can often utilize the market to right-size somebody organizationally is kind of my, my thought. I don't know if you've got a, like a counter or an additional point on that topic. You're, you've got to kind of answer for young Azam and then as current leader at GM Azam, which are kind of two different hats we're talking about. So you're in you're
0: in a little bit of a pinch there. I wasn't intentional. Wasn't <laughs> That's a tough one. You know, I think the thought that keeps coming to my mind is it goes back to early and often, right? And so mm. if I'm providing feedback early and often, I think most employees should understand where they would stand with me to begin with, right? right. In terms of, are they someone that I'm going to go to bat for, right? Based on that feedback. On the flip side, if I were in that position, I'd rely on that same type of feedback, right? you know, is my boss giving me a certain type of feedback that would help me understand where I, where I am within the organization. And, um, but for me, I'm kind of like you, Steve. I mean, I think if sometimes organizations focus, I know this is probably a little bit of a different answer. They focus way more on where the individual is leaving to go to, than they do the reason the person is looking to leave. Wow. Yeah. Right and it's not even about money most of the time. They just focus on are you going to a competitor? Okay, who's hiring? It's almost like they start to worry about who you might take with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? Like what is you know, what is the impact of Steve leaving the organization? Is it beyond Steve or is it just Steve? Okay. Cool. What company is Steve going to? Right. And will not ask one question about why you're looking to leave. And that always just kind of really gets to me.
1: <laughs> As it should, it should bother everyone, and I don't know that that there's enough folks out there that give a damn, frankly. At least in my experience, which is certainly not a, a full sampling of um, everyone that should or shouldn't, but it's it's a tough one, man. I mean, I what, an, another point that that you mentioned earlier is you were talking about just earlier in your career, you just wanted it to go fast, like you just, <laughs> and I, and I did the same thing, man. I mean, I would look at, I remember is a quick story. My first salaried position I had, I negotiated for an extra, going in an extra two grand. And I didn't have two nickels to rub together. I didn't have a damn thing. And somehow I got the, the fortitude to negotiate from 48000 to $50,000. And at that point in time, I was the richest man on earth. What I didn't realize is that negotiation that took an additional seven minutes on a telephone, that two grand was more then my next two merit raises. That's not fast, right? That's pretty slow, right? In terms of increase in salary and all that. That was merit. That was bonus. That was everything. But all I was focused on from that point on was title and money. Didn't care what I was doing. Didn't care what the work was title and money. And I was looking at everyone else. Why is that person so much higher than me? They're not as good as I am. Mm-hmm. And you said something to me. So pursuant to this. You said, do you want a job or a career? It's kind of the question that you were kind of asking yourself or had asked of you, and now you ask others, not knowing the damn difference between the two. And so how does young Azam or, or young anybody know the difference between the two if they don't have a mentor telling them, right? Do they, does everybody just have to fail through that? Or, or how do we fix that for, for folks new in, in, a, in a professional career?
0: You nailed it, right? I think the key word there is mentorship. And- There was a time in my younger career i didn't have it but when i when i acquired mentors right and i would say you know my general philosophy i tell people all the time if you work within a company find a mentor within the company but always maintain an external mentor as well you need the internal and the external perspective
1: let me pause you there so why what what are each of those why do you need both what's the difference between the two before we kind of move move on
0: sure for me the internal mentor can help you navigate politically within the organization they know typically know players within the organization right so they can help you avoid some pitfalls right and how you're moving within the organization right the external mentor doesn't have any association with the company they don't know the people the players etc if you calibrate the feedback and the advice based off of what you tell the internal and external mentor you typically at least for me, I landed in the best positions uh, relative to making the right decisions and moving the right way Just having an internal mentor they have to fight to be really objective, especially mm. if they like you so you, you may have some internal mentors that will all of a sudden they ping you and say, hey just want to give you a heads up this is coming you might want to go apply for this job you might want to Right? They're helping you move based off of their fear sometimes.
1: Ah, I think that's worth restating. So, someone that you're close with may be then close to your org, and a move that you could make might introduce pain into their world.
0: Not necessarily their world, but they they project their fears, right? You know, they put themselves in your shoes and where you are within the organization. And so, their advice is based off of how they would move not necessarily objective, right?
1: Feedback. Which of the two is more difficult to identify and and foster? I, I have an opinion, but having a coach or a mentor, and many people use those terms interchangeably, even though they're not technically the same thing. But in both cases, you're talking about someone who I would assume is a longer term contact that's aware of your career and maybe elements of your life. Which for a young person, again, we're kind of learning, leaning back toward young Azam, maybe not the youngest Isam, but maybe getting into leadership Azam, Which one's the more, more difficult to cultivate and to identify?
0: I think the the internal one, right? At least for me it was, because the options seemed really plentiful. Because <laughs> you typically will look like within your org, maybe not within your direct management chain but you might look within your org and and by the way i think it's always a bad idea to have a mentor within your direct management chain you typically look within your organization let's say for example it's it right you'll go find an it leader people speak highly of you know him or her you know you you know okay i'm going to reach out to that person it's harder to identify and then acquire right them as a mentor because you've gotten that feedback everybody thinks they're great they usually give good good advice which means that you have you have competition for time. Mm-hmm. They're at capacity. They're not going to be able to take any and everyone that comes to them. So, you know, they have to see something in you that makes them want to be a mentor. Otherwise, I mean, they they would spend a hundred percent of their time doing mentorship. So for me, it's always the internal one's a little bit harder. The external one, you know, you also typically have for, you know, I think you highlighted you, you know that person typically a lot longer. Maybe they've seen more career progression than they've seen job progression from you. So the, the mentorship is a little different from that aspect as well. And because you've established that relationship, they're a lot more committed to your success.
1: I would, I would agree to that for sure. On this journey, uh, you had kind of an interesting statement talking about being promoted. And one of the statements you mentioned that if things happen out of order there, Your quote was, you're asking for an adversarial situation, and it involved the concept of influence. We were talking earlier about, you know, you kind of have to have influence before you have a title, but there's a risk there. If you're promoted and it happens kind of out of the order that you've established, it can come with quite a bit of friction, this adversarial situation. What did you mean by that?
0: Yeah, and I was speaking more from personal experience, but I think, you know, if you and not necessarily me being promoted and having friction as much as I've right. seen it happen, right? Where sure. the individual contributor didn't have really good influence management skill sets, you know, didn't really, you know, manage themselves and their peers in a way in which they foster trust, gets promoted. And it, people naturally question them, right? Because it's based off of their relationship with you. Right. Right. If you were adversarial, um, or perceived to be as an individual contributor, it's only natural that now they're going <laughs> to question the promotion. <laughs> right. right? It's, just, it's just human nature. And the worse you are right, at managing those relationships, you create more friction. Right. So, I mean, how many times have you heard someone got promoted and it's like the, the feedback from the org is like, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> right. Yes.
1: Yes. 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 I've been there.
0: People can't see it. Now, on the flip side, it may be well-deserved, but that person didn't create enough visibility for themselves for, to the point where people would understand it, right? They, they worked within a bubble, right. limited visibility to certain leaders, and then they all agreed like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, I think this person would be perfect for the, for, the, for the opportunity. But the response from the organization is, I don't know who this person is. I don't trust right. this person. They've worked in a bubble or they've spent a lot of time
1: popping the bubbles of others. I've done both. I've, I've been <laughs> a bubble popper and worked in bubbles and yeah, that's, that's a very real situation. And then you get in and that, that absolutely happens where they're like, what, what'd they do? Why'd they promote that kid over there? Mm-hmm. He does nothing but flip over tables. Right. Yeah. And it's, that's a really important having the optics. You know, I had somebody that, well, my father used to say there, there is no reality. Uh, there's only perception. And, That's an absolute statement that isn't necessarily true, but in corporate America, you have to think of what is the perception of of you as an individual, as a leader, as a contributor? How how well can you work with others? Can you get things done? Are you taking credit for other people's work that you shouldn't? Are you um, sort of hearty with praise, giving that to others? Or are you quick to, to sort of own that as your work, knowing that it was a team's effort, right? That I see that all the time. And that's typically a great way to upset your new team if you're seen as sort of the the only contributor when there's a a larger sort of thrust towards a solution and you take all the credit. Yeah, I want to get into a couple. You had some phenomenal perspective on diversity and inclusion and utilizing the the idea in a way that wasn't apparent to me. I learned something from the conversation. Uh, it was in the form of an exercise that you did with your team. I thought it was fantastic, and I'd like us to kind of unpack it for the benefit of the listeners. And It's a series of exercises you did that I think is honestly something I am not people that know me know that I don't gladhand. I'm very direct, and I think it's something that all of us would benefit from doing. Would you do us uh, the favor of, of walking through kind of this Maybe the purest diversity and inclusion exercise I could think of doing, and how, and talk a little bit how it benefited your program at GM.
0: Yeah. And it kind of extended uh, from my time at the Coca Cola company. So the CIO there at the time, Ed Steineke, you know, used to have this saying, and unfortunately he's passed, but, you know, he would say, grant sincerity, and was really around his leadership team. At the time, there was a lot of friction, and he would say, you know, you guys got to learn to. Grant sincerity because the friction is being inherited by your teams, and you know while you all may each individually, right, and your teams might be doing really well, you guys kind of suck when it comes to working with each other. So the exercise was really around. Look, I've got a pretty disparate team in terms of backgrounds. There were things that I could see, right, that they couldn't see in themselves, right, just at least from from my my vantage point, my individual conversations with those individuals, but. You know, instead of saying, hey, you know, Mikey is a really interesting individual. You know, Mikey, why don't you get up and and tell the class, you know, about yourself, right? I wanted to do it in a way in which they didn't know who was providing answers. So we came up with kind of a short questionnaire and it was pretty informal, but it covered things like where did you grow up? You know, if it was a different country, state that country. How many languages do you speak fluently, right? Um, Like true proficiency in the language. If you migrated to the country, you know, then name your country of origin, a series of questions like that, educational background, just a variety of things that people wouldn't naturally guess about someone. And so correlated all the answers. We put them up on a screen. We walked through the questions. We had a map, right, that talked about the different, you know, we highlighted the different languages that people spoke, the countries that they had either lived in. That was another one. Uh, If you lived in a country, I think for more than three years, right, that provided a perspective. If you places traveled, that was another one, right? So we created kind of this, this visual map, right, with all of the answers. And based on that exercise, you know, we just kind of walked through it. And you could see people literally looking around the room at people that they thought provided those answers. And from my perspective, I'm sitting there chuckling because... You know, everyone I saw that was looking at someone else had it, 99% of the time had it wrong, unless it it was obvious, right? Like they already knew about about something about a person. But you you had so many, you had way more similarities than you ever had differences. And where there were differences, people naturally started to tap on the shoulders of those individuals, right? To tap into their strength, right? Or make those connections. And so one of the, the things that I saw happened was people that were not normally connected, all of a sudden were having coffee breaks together. They were, right, because naturally they became a lot more curious about either a language, a place that someone traveled, maybe they had plans to travel to that place and didn't realize someone lived there, you know, for, you know, three years of their life. And so it changed the dynamic of the team from my perspective, at least, where walls just started to tear down like immediately after that session.
1: And I, I think there's an operational value that is not meant to come first, but it can still be reinforced in a positive way. You know there was a, an example from my past is we were doing some work uh, attempting to understand some languages, <laughs> Russian in particular. And uh, you know we had someone on in another team that was still part of the framework which I helped create this gentleman spoke Russian. And so he was not on the Intel side, but he kind of became part of the Intel <laughs> side. And, okay. it's, and it's kind of, I think, now I didn't go through this exercise, and I, and I wish I would have. Uh, we had something that we did that was more kind of Lego block uh, that was levels of education, certificate. It was the who we are slide and the, sort of this infographic we built that sort of outlined. We did include you know, some diversity information, but not to the depths you're talking about. And I think this is a really nice item for teams to consider because of the, there's a, there's a great book I've mentioned on an earlier show called the speed of trust Mm. uh, by Covey. And what you're doing is, is you're building more awareness, which ultimately leads to more trust. And that unit, that team group of people, this tribe can make faster decisions. It by sharing each other's knowledge more quickly because they trust, they know more, they trust each other just that much more and they can move very quickly without friction. That's yeah, my kind absolutely. of synthesis, right? You shared with me that I was kind of asking you, like, what do we get wrong as leaders on, just in general, it was kind of related to this, but just as, as hiring leaders. And you said, we look for skill sets. We look for skill sets only. And you mentioned how that kills Sort of natural learning and curiosity. Can you add to that? And, and how did you, if you're not looking for skill sets, then what are you looking for?
0: The big thing for me is you kind of highlighted that you kill the inquisitiveness of individuals. And in as far as the type of individual, I want learners, right? People who are actively learning. When people say that they're highly educated, they're actually talking about their past. And they're not mentioning anything about, you know, the the process of educating themselves. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about acquired skill sets, you know, yeah, we talk about things that people know, right? What do they bring to the table right now? We have a tendency when we build these teams to, we've got to get it 100% right, you know, for every single role, right? The person has to have all of these technical skills, et cetera. So now I've put all, I've put all these similar technical skills or identical technical skills on one team. And then every single time that we run into an issue where we have to, transform and adapt, we see what happens a lot of times with those teams, at least from my experience, they struggle, right? right? Because that's the the only, you know, they got hired on or recruited or transferred into that role based on what they already knew. And, you know, it's not a team that's highly transformative, adaptive, because they're probably not going to be a team that's going to continue to learn and evolve. So the moment, you know, that a management decision gets made that we go away from, let's say, a particular type of technology. We go away from traditional security controls to zero trust as one example. It's a completely different learning curve all of a sudden. So, you know, we've essentially, right, done a soft retirement, of skill sets as soon as we have to make a change.
1: <laughs> right, right. I love that. And that's just too good. Uh, I love that statement. And I, I think another story, uh, well, maybe before we jump to this other point, but we fall into this trap when we go to hire folks, when we make a job rack, that HR wants us to list all these skills and programming languages and years, certifications. How do we break that? I think that mold, what does it take to then look for? Where do we find curiosity and natural learning? How do we put that on a resume? Or How do we, how do we facilitate that and, and how do we utilize that to maybe pick up the person that hasn't gone the same road as, as most? that hasn't come out of the machine of schooling that, that we often see or that's maybe isn't the person that has a, a family where anyone's even worked in an office before or the, the person who has that, that natural ability but just might not look that way on the piece of paper that everybody else has? How do, What's the method there? Is there, is there a, a th- something to consider?
0: Yeah, I don't know that there's a A documented method, but I can tell you what works for me. I mean, you follow the guidelines of okay, let's list all the skill set. You'll interview for that, no doubt about it. But for me, you know, I like to look at the resume and say, has this person worked on the building blocks of a career, right? Because the the opportunities, right, that they had if they worked on a career versus job to job, they did the same thing over and over and over and over. Versus they've really been challenged with the roles that they've had. It's completely different. And then you know, in the interview process. That's the next great opportunity from our perspective to pull that out. I'm not the biggest fan of the standardized behavioral interview questions. You know, tell me a time when you, right? Right. Those are trash. Right. But asking the questions in an open-ended fashion, especially if you can, if you have the skill set as an interviewer to to build a level of trust, they will tell you every single thing you need to know in an interview, right? So things I look for, right? Without even asking. Sometimes you'll get I actually get this quite a bit for whatever reason, but people will feel comfortable saying, hey, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a plus. And it's not a plus because they graduated from college, but what it says is they probably had a background from a family perspective that was a little bit different. The work ethic was a little bit different. Most of the time you do fine, right? They were more blue collar, get it done, figure out a way to use a wrench five different ways in order to get a job done. That is, a, that is a super soft, transferable skill when it comes to the work we do. They won't look at it the same way just because they learned it in school. You know, my father was an accountant, you know, now I'm an accountant and my grandkids will be accountants. And it's not a knock against accounting, but the practice has remained relatively the same. We're in a highly adaptive, constantly changing field. And so we need to be able to tap into people that have that mindset. That things are not going to be the same. One day it's going to rain on a farm, right? And when it rains, you have mud and you have to contend with both.
1: (laughs) One of my favorite questions to ask is of what are you most proud? And most people get that answer to that question wrong. And the example I'll give there was a young lady that I interviewed once and she gave an answer. She was a little bit nervous, but she said, Well, I'm very organized. I said, you're most proud of that? I said, I've had a conversation with you earlier where you talked about that the members, the elders of your tribe put money together to fly you to the United States to go to school and to see you be successful. And now you're interviewing, you're done with your schooling. You won an award from your government to come here. The members of your tribe put money together and sacrificed to send you here and you're now representing them here as an extension of them. I said, do you want to answer that question one more time? Mm. I said, of what are you most proud? I said, I don't want to force an answer. I said, but I want you to consider that and out of respect for them, but also that that's a characteristic that I find personally interesting. And I said, and that's, but as an interviewer, you have to spend some time to get to know the person as well. Had I not asked uh, hey, I I see you studied. I don't know we even know where that. Is. What explain to me where like, you know that's that's incumbent on the leader on the interviewer. But of what are you most proud? And I usually don't get even the answers of folks that haven't traveled halfway around the world are sometimes a little initially a little bland because it's not something we ask. It's like asking somebody. People ask you a hundred different things, but very rarely will they ask, "Are you happy?" <laughs> right? Yeah, are you happy, right? So. Any additional thoughts on, on that, um, the skill set topic, or did my, my story jostle any other gems uh, in your mind to share?
0: Only that, you know, when I was listening to the story, the first thing that came to mind was, you know, how uncomfortable people are sometimes, especially if they come from humble beginnings, talking about mm-hmm. themselves, right? So they tend to probably get that answer wrong, at least from my perspective, because they're just looking for, they go to a skill set. That's not very personal, right? I mean, right. she's highly organized, but I think if you had asked the question, uh, at least in my mind and said, who have you made proud? I think her first answer probably would have been her tribe because there would have been a reason why, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I have any other nuggets on that one. I think that's <laughs> a, that, other than that, that's probably a tough question for,
1: for a lot of us. It involves sharing insecurity sometimes, and that's- yeah, that. Yeah, it is. Exactly. I haven't gotten there completely myself, but I, uh, but I love the question and I, I think I like yours even better, uh, the, maybe using both in tandem. So I could talk about, I, I still have a whole list of other things to talk about, but we're going to have to do that another time because we're out of time. Azam, you've been a fantastic guest. This has gone Thank you. way too quickly. I've got one sort of closing question that I ask every guest. Pursuant to the name of our show, which is the new CISO, or you could say the new leader, uh, what does being a new CISO, a new security leader mean to you, sir?
0: The way I look at this is we talk about being in a field that's constantly changing. The, the big thing for me is I think some of us wait for things to change and adapt versus having some foresight around change. So we're in organizations, we're in industries, you know, specific verticals. The information is out there. We kind of know, like in the auto industry, where we're headed, right? Right. From an autonomous standpoint, et cetera. Most of the other verticals, you can kind of see the trends. For me, the, the CISO or the security leader needs to be seriously proactive in moving the organization or the teams they manage towards that change versus reacting to it. And, and that Absolutely. to me would be the biggest thing. Fantastic,
1: Some As- I've very much enjoyed our conversation today, and I, and I appreciate uh, you sharing your leadership experiences to the community uh, so they can uh, make use of it and, and hopefully become better leaders using your advice. Thank you so much, Azam. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.